book five chapter twelve of on the ends of good and evil by cicero translated by harris rackham this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards having made it sufficiently clear that every one by nature loves himself we must next examine what is the nature of man for it is human nature that is the object of our investigation now it is manifest that man consists of body and mind although the parts of the mind hold the first place and those of the body the second next we further observe both that man's body is of a structure surpassing that of other animals and that his mind is so constituted as not only to be equipped with senses but also to possess the predominant factor of intellect which commands the obedience of the whole of man's nature being endowed with the marvellous faculties of reason of cognition of knowledge and of all the virtues for the attributes of the body are not comparable in importance with the parts of the mind and moreover they are easier to understand we will therefore begin with them it is manifest how well the parts of our body and its entire figure form and stature are adapted to our nature and that special conformation of the brow eyes ears and other parts which is appropriate to man can be recognized without hesitation by the understanding but of course it is necessary that these organs should be healthy and vigorous and possessed of their natural motions and uses no part must be lacking and none must be diseased or enfeebled this is a requirement of nature again our body also possesses a faculty of action which keeps its motions and postures in harmony with nature and any error in these due to distortion or deformity or abnormality of movement or posture for example if a man were to walk in his hands or backwards instead of forwards would make a man appear alienated from himself as if he had stripped off his proper humanity and hated his own nature hence certain attitudes in sitting and slouching languishing movements such as are affected by the wanton and the effeminate are contrary to nature and though really arising from a defect of mind suggest to the eye a bodily perversion of man's nature and so on the contrary a controlled and well-regulated bearing condition and movement of the body have the appearance of being in harmony with nature turning now to the mind this must not only exist but also be of a certain character it must have all its parts intact and lack none of the virtues the senses also possess their several virtues or excellences consisting in the unimpeded performance of their several functions of swiftly and readily perceiving the objects presented to them chapter thirteen the mind on the other hand and that dominant part of the mind which is called the intellect possess many excellences or virtues but these are of two main classes one class consists of those excellences which are the result of our natural endowments and which are called non-volitional and the other of those which depending on our volition are usually styled virtues in the more special sense and the latter are the pre-eminent glory and distinction of the mind 
to the former class belong receptiveness and memory and practically all the excellences of this class are included under one name of talent and their possessors are spoken of as talented the other class consists of the lofty virtues properly so called which we speak of as dependent on volition for instance prudence temperance courage justice and the others of the same kind such is the account a brief one it is true that it was necessary to give of the body and the mind it has indicated in outline what the requirements of man's nature are and it has clearly shown that since we love ourselves and desire all our attributes both of mind and body to be perfect our mind and body are themselves dear to us for their own sakes and are of the highest importance for our general well-being for he who aims at the preservation of himself must necessarily feel an affection for the parts of himself also and the more so the more perfect and admirable in their own kind they are for the life we desire is one fully equipped with the virtues of mind and body and such a life must constitute the chief good inasmuch as it must necessarily be such as to be the limit of things desirable this truth realized it cannot be doubted that as men feel an affection towards themselves for their own sakes and of their own accord the parts also of the body and mind and of those faculties which are displayed in each while in motion or at rest are esteemed for their own attractiveness and desired for their own sake from these explanations it may readily be inferred that the most desirable of our attributes are those possessed of the highest intrinsic worth so that the most desirable excellences are the excellences of the noblest parts of us which are desirable for their own sake the result will be that excellence of mind will be rated higher than excellence of body and the volitional virtues of the mind will surpass the non-volitional the former indeed are the virtues specially so called and are far superior in that they spring from reason the most divine element in man for the inanimate or nearly inanimate creatures that are under nature's charge all of them have their supreme good in the body hence it has been cleverly said as i think about the pig that a mind has been bestowed upon this animal to serve as salt and keep it from going bad chapter fourteen but there are some animals which possess something resembling virtue for example lions dogs and horses in these we observe not only bodily movements as in pigs but in some degree a sort of mental activity also in man however the supreme end appertains entirely to the mind and to the rational part of the mind which is the source of virtue and virtue is defined as the perfection of reason a doctrine which the peripatetics think cannot be expounded too often plants also have a development and progress to maturity that is not unlike that of animals hence we speak of a vine as living and dying or of a tree as young or old in the prime of life or decrepit consequently it is appropriate to suppose that with them as with animals certain things are suited and certain other things foreign to their nature and that their growth and nurture is tended by a foster-mother the science and art of husbandry which trims and prunes straightens raises and props enabling them to follow the course that nature prescribes till the vines themselves 
could they speak, would acknowledge this to be their proper mode of treatment and of tendance. In reality, of course, the power that tends the vine, to take that particular instance, is something outside of it, for the vine does not possess force enough in itself to be able to attain its highest possible development without the aid of cultivation. But suppose the vine to receive the gift of sensation, bestowing on it some degree of appetition and power of movement, then what do you think it will do? Will it not endeavor to provide for itself the benefits which it previously obtained by the aid of the vine-dresser? But do you mark how it will further be concerned to protect its sensory faculties also, and all their appetitive instincts, and any additional organs it may have developed? Thus, with the properties that it always possessed, it will combine those subsequently added to it, and it will not have the same end as the husbandman who tended it had, but will desire to live in accordance with that nature which it has subsequently acquired. And so its end or good will be similar to, but not the same as, what it was before. It will no longer seek the good of a plant, but that of an animal. Suppose again that it have bestowed upon it not merely sensation, but also a human mind. Will it not result that, while its former properties remain objects of its care, these added properties will be far more dear to it, and that the best part of the mind will be the dearest of all? Will it not find its end or chief good in this crowning development of its nature, inasmuch as intellect and reason are far and away the highest faculties that exist? Thus there has emerged the final term of the series of objects of desire. Thus guided, by the primary attraction of nature, it has risen by many stages, till it has reached the summit, the consummation of perfect bodily integrity, combined with the full development of the mental faculty of reason. Chapter 15. The plan of our nature being, then, that which I have explained, if, as I said at the outset, every man, as soon as he is born, could know himself, and could appreciate the powers of his nature, as a whole, and of its several parts, he would at once perceive what is this thing that we seek, the highest and last of the objects of our desires, and he would be incapable of error in anything. But, as it is, our nature, at the beginning, is curiously hidden from us, and we cannot fully realize or understand it. Yet, as we grow older, we gradually, or I should say, tardily, come, as it were, to know ourselves. Accordingly, the earliest feeling of attraction which nature has created in us towards ourselves is vague and obscure, and the earliest instinct of appetition only strives to secure our safety and freedom from injury. When, however, discernment dawns, and we begin to perceive what we are, and how we differ from the rest of living creatures, we then commence to pursue the objects for which we are intended by nature. Some resemblance to this process we observe in the lower animals. At first they do not move from the place where they were born. Then they begin to move, under the influence of their several instincts of appetition. We see little snakes gliding, ducklings swimming, blackbirds flying, oxen using their horns, scorpions their stings. Each, in fact, has its own nature as its guide to life. A similar process is clearly seen in the human race. Infants just born lie as if absolutely inanimate, when they have acquired some small degree of strength, they exercise their mind and their senses. They strive to stand erect, they use their hands, they recognize their nurses, 
then they take pleasure in the society of other children and enjoy meeting them they take part in games and love to hear stories they desire to bestow of their own abundance in bounty to others they take a keen interest in what goes on in the household they begin to reflect and to learn and want to know the names of the people they see in competition with their companions they are elated by victory discouraged and disheartened by defeat for every stage of this development there must be supposed to be a reason it is that human capacity is so constituted by nature that it appears designed to achieve every kind of virtue hence children without instruction are actuated by semblances of the virtues of which they possess in themselves the seeds for those are primary elements of our nature which seeds sprout and blossom into virtue for we are so constituted from birth as to contain within us the primary instincts of activity of affection of liberality and of gratitude we are also gifted with minds that are adapted to knowledge prudence and courage and averse from their opposites hence we see the reason why we observe in children those sparks of virtue i have mentioned from which the philosopher's torch of reason must be kindled that he may follow reason as his divine guide and so arrive at nature's goal for as i have repeatedly said already in the years of immaturity and intellectual weakness the powers of our nature are discerned as through a mist but as the mind grows older and stronger it learns to know the capacity of our nature while recognizing that this nature is susceptible of further development and has by itself only reached an incomplete condition chapter sixteen we must therefore penetrate into the nature of things and come to understand thoroughly its requirements otherwise we cannot know ourselves that precept was too high for man's discernment and was therefore ascribed to a god it is therefore the pythian apollo who bids us know ourselves but the sole road to self-knowledge is to know the powers of body and of mind and to follow the path of life that gives us their full realization now inasmuch as our original instinct of desire was for the possession of the parts aforesaid in their fullest natural perfection it must be allowed that when we have attained the object of our desire our nature takes its stand in this as its final end and this constitutes our chief good and that this end as a whole must be desired intrinsically and in and for itself follows of necessity from the fact that the several parts of it also have already been proved to be desirable for themselves if however any one thinks that our enumeration of bodily advantages is incomplete owing to the omission of pleasure let us postpone this question to another time for whether pleasure is or is not one of the objects we have called the primary things in accordance with nature makes no difference for our present inquiry if as i hold pleasure adds nothing to the sum total of nature's goods it has rightly been omitted if on the contrary pleasure does possess the property that some assign to it this fact does not impair the general outline we have just given of the chief good since if to the primary objects of nature as we have explained them pleasure be added this only adds one more to the list of bodily advantages and does not alter the interpretation of the chief good which has been propounded chapter seventeen so far as our argument has proceeded hitherto it has been based entirely upon the primary attractions of nature but from this point on let us adopt a different line of reasoning namely to show that in addition to the argument from self-love 
the fact that each part of our nature both mental and bodily possesses its own peculiar energy goes to prove that the activity of our several parts is pre-eminently spontaneous to start with the body do you notice how men try to hide a deformed or infirm or maimed limb they actually take great pains and trouble to conceal if they possibly can their bodily defect or at all events to let it be seen as little as possible they even undergo painful courses of treatment in order to restore the natural appearance of their limbs even though the actual use of them will not only not be improved but will even be diminished in fact since every man instinctively thinks that he himself in his entirety is a thing to be desired and this not for the sake of anything else but for his own sake it follows that when a thing is desired as a whole for its own sake the parts also of that thing are desired for their own sakes again is there nothing in the movements and postures of the body which nature herself judges to be of importance a man's mode of walking and sitting his particular cast of features and expression is there nothing in these things that we consider worthy or unworthy of a free man do we not often think people deserving of dislike who by some movement or posture appear to have violated a law or principle of nature and since people try to get rid of these defects of bearing why should not even beauty have a good claim to be considered as desirable for its own sake for if we think imperfection or mutilation of the body things to be avoided for their own sake why should we not with equal or perhaps still greater reason pursue dignity of form for its own sake and if we avoid ugliness in bodily movement and posture why should we not pursue beauty health also and strength and freedom from pain we shall desire not merely for their utility but also for their own sakes for since our nature aims at the full development of all its parts she desires for its own sake that state of body which is most in accordance with himself because she is thrown into utter disorder if the body is diseased or in pain or weak chapter eighteen let us consider the parts of the mind which are of nobler aspect the loftier these are the more unmistakable indications of nature do they afford so great is our innate love of learning and of knowledge that no one can doubt that man's nature is strongly attracted to these things even without the lure of any profit do we notice how children cannot be deterred even by punishment from studying and inquiring into the world around them drive them away and back they come they delight in knowing things they are eager to impart their knowledge to others pageants games and shows of that sort hold them spellbound and they will even endure hunger and thirst so as to be able to see them again take persons who delight in the liberal arts and studies do we not see them careless of health or business patiently enduring any inconvenience when under the spell of learning and of science and repaid for endless toil and trouble by the pleasure they derive from acquiring knowledge for my part i believe homer had something of this sort in view in his imaginary account of the songs of the sirens apparently it was not the sweetness of their voices or the novelty and diversity of their songs but their professions of knowledge that used to attract the passing voyagers it was the passion for learning that kept men rooted to the sirens rocky shores this is their invitation to ulysses for i have translated this among other passages of homer ulysses pride of argos turn thy bark and listen to our music 
never yet did voyager sail these waters blue but stayed his course enchanted by our voices sweet and having filled his soul with harmony went on his homeward way a wiser man we know the direful strife and clash of war that greece by heaven's mandate bore to troy and whatsoe'er on the wide earth befalls homer was aware that his story would not sound plausible if the magic that held his hero enmeshed was the charm of mere melody it is knowledge that the sirens offer and it was no marvel if a lover of wisdom held this dearer than his home an itch for miscellaneous omniscience no doubt stamps a man as a mere dilettante but it must be deemed the mark of a superior mind to be led on by the contemplation of high matters to a passionate love of knowledge chapter nineteen what an ardour for study think you possessed archimedes who was so absorbed in a diagram he was drawing in the dust that he was unaware even of the capture of his native city what genius do we see expended by aristoxenus on the theory of music imagine the zeal of a lifetime that aristophanes devoted to literature why should i speak of pythagoras or of plato or democritus for they we are told in their passion for learning travelled through the remotest parts of the earth those who are blind to these facts have never been enamoured of some high and worthy study and those who in this connection allege that the studies i have mentioned are pursued for the sake of mental pleasure fail to see that they are proved to be desirable for their own sake by the very fact that the mind feels delight in them when no bait of advantage is held out and finds enjoyment in the mere possession of knowledge even though it is likely to be a positive disadvantage to its possessor but what is the point of inquiring further into matters so obvious let us ask ourselves the question what feelings are produced in us by the motions of the stars and by contemplating the heavenly bodies and studying all the obscure and secret realms of nature what pleasure we derive from books on history which we are so fond of perusing to the very last page turning back to parts we have omitted and pushing on to the end when we have once begun not that i am unaware that history is useful as well as entertaining but what of our reading fiction from which no utility can be extracted what of our eagerness to learn the names of people who have done something notable their parentage birthplace and many quite unimportant details beside what of the delight that is taken in history by men of the humblest station who have no expectation of participating in public life even mere artisans also we may notice that the persons most eager to hear and read of public affairs are those who are debarred by the infirmities of age from any prospect of taking part in them hence we are forced to infer that the objects of study and knowledge contain in themselves the allurements that entice us to study and learning the old philosophers picture what the life of the wise will be in the islands of the blessed and imagine them released from all anxiety needing none of the necessary equipment or accessories of life and with nothing else to do but to spend their whole time upon study and research in the science of nature we on the other hand see in such studies not only the amusement of a life of happiness but also the alleviation of misfortune hence the numbers of men who when they had fallen into the power of enemies or tyrants or when they were in prison or in exile have solaced their sorrow with the pursuit of learning demetrius of phalerum 
the ruler of this city when unjustly banished from his country repaired to the court of king ptolemy at alexandria being eminent in the very system of philosophy which we are recommending to you and a pupil of theophrastus he employed the leisure afforded by his disaster in composing a number of excellent treatises not for any practical use in his own case for from this he was debarred but he found a sort of food for his intellectual tastes in thus cultivating his mind i myself frequently heard the blind ex-praetor and scholar gnaeus aufidius declare that he felt the actual loss of light more than the inconvenience of blindness take lastly the gift of sleep did it not bring us repose for our bodies and an antidote to labour we should think it a violation of nature for it robs us of sensation and entirely suspends our activity so that if our nature did not require repose or could obtain it in some other manner we should be quite content inasmuch as even as it is we frequently deny ourselves slumber almost to the point of doing violence to nature in the interests of business or of study chapter twenty even more striking and in fact absolutely obvious and convincing natural indications are not wanting more particularly no doubt in man but also in every living creature of the presence of a positive craving for constant activity perpetual repose is unendurable on any terms this is a fact that may be readily detected in children of the tenderest age if i may risk being thought to lay undue stress on a field of observation sanctioned by the older thinkers all of whom and my own school more than others go to the nursery because they believe that nature reveals her plan to them most clearly in childhood even infants we notice are incapable of keeping still children of a somewhat more advanced age delight in games involving considerable exertion from which not even fear of punishment can restrain them and this passion for activity grows as they grow older the prospect of the most delightful dreams would not reconcile us to falling asleep for ever endymion's fate we should consider an exact image of death observe the least energetic among men even in a notorious idler both mind and body are constantly in motion set him free from unavoidable occupations and he calls for a dice-board goes off to some sport or looks for somebody to chat with seeking at the club or at some trivial social gathering a substitute for higher and more intellectual amusements even the wild animals that we keep in cages for our entertainment find their captivity irksome although they are better fed than if they were at large they miss their natural birthright of free and untrammelled movement hence the abler and more accomplished a man is the less he would care to be alive at all if debarred from taking part in affairs although allowed to consume an unlimited supply of pleasures men of ability either choose a life of private activity or if of loftier ambition aspire to a public career of political or military office or else they devote themselves entirely to study and learning and the devotees of learning are so far from making pleasure their aim that they actually endure care anxiety and loss of sleep and in the exercise of the noblest part of man's nature the divine element within us for so we must consider the keen edge of the intellect and the reason they ask for no pleasure and avoid no toil they are ceaselessly occupied in marvelling at the discoveries of the ancients or in pursuing new researches of their own 
insatiable in their appetite for study they forget all else besides and harbour not one base or mean thought so potent is the spell of these pursuits that even those who profess to follow other ends of goods defined by utility or pleasure may yet be seen to spend their whole lives in investigating and unfolding the processes of nature End of chapter twenty recording in memory of mitchell edwards